Hello, everybody. This is Drew Goodman. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast. Where are the Broncos now? It has not changed. They're decidedly mediocre. Where is the NFL officiating? They're killing the league. They're killing They're killing football. A story from Major League Baseball that may anger you. And he took, in some circles, some shit for being at the birth of his kid. The MLB playoffs. I'm still going to go with Houston. I picked him weeks and weeks ago. They're the best team top to bottom in baseball. And part two of Drew's interview with Mark Schlereth. Stuff you've never heard from Stink in the past. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey everybody, it is podcast number 14. It is Drew Goodman. It is Julie Brownman. Why are you laughing already? Because Kristen's about to do a Twitter live and you're sitting on my bed. Again. It just makes me laugh. Yeah. And you're sitting on your bar Dining chair. room. Yeah. It yes. just it just makes me laugh. It's just uh, the essence the essence of podcasting. You know what makes me laugh? What? How hypocritical you are, my friend. Uh-oh. Because last week we started out, you're giving me shit because I work out a couple times a day. Yeah. Meathead. I just came from the gym. (laughs) But I walk in to your abode tonight and and Kristen's here. Kristen's our our crack marketing person. Actually, she has a ton of roles, even roles she doesn't understand that she has right now. Right. But um, on your counter- we're like six bags of protein powder and shake stuff. So don't give me a hard time about uh, workouts. I don't do. You're carrying them under both arms on your way to Gold's. You know what? I'm supposed to be doing this. It's kind of funny you say that because I am doing this cleanse and there's so many products. So you drink the cleanse. It's supposed to get everything out. Uh, note mm-hmm. to sell. A cleanse is the real deal. Like. Are we really going there? Nope. So anyway, so I'm drinking the cleanse. And there's like a Heath bar sitting right there. Somebody got me a Heath bar. Yeah. So I eventually ate the Heath bar as I'm doing the cleanse. You're not supposed to do that. No, I would think not. If you're <laughs> if you're cleansing your body and trying to put healthy stuff in, I don't. I, I've never been a dietitian uh, <laughs> right. or a nutritionist, but I would think Heath bar is not something that's prominently um, featured in such. Yeah. I think as a cleanse. I need to go back to the uh, drawing board. Yeah. So, uh, uh, how about those Broncos now? Two wins in a row. We're taping. We, we have to be honest. Uh, we're always honest, but we, we tape on Tuesday nights typically. So we're between. It's a weird time. The, the Broncos yeah. had the shutout over Tennessee, and then Thursday night, the first day this comes out, really, uh, the Broncos will be taking on the Chiefs, trying to snap, by the way, a seven-game losing streak against Kansas City, and suddenly Kansas City is vulnerable. Where are the Broncos? Good win on Sunday. I'm not sure whether – and you give the Broncos credit. They they got after the quarterback. They were active in the secondary. They shut out Tennessee. They deserve a great deal of credit. However, Tennessee sucks. Tennessee is god-awful. That is, the, that is one of the worst offenses I've ever seen in the NFL. So I'm not sure – how well the Broncos played or just how poor the Titans are on offense. Right. Um, I agree with all. I But I do think no matter what, it's hard to shut out a team, right? So I'm going to start with the positive from the Broncos. It was a, it was a really pretty ugly game, except for, you know. It was a boring game. It was, it was a terrible a, game. It was a bad game. and But why would we be surprised? It was a, a team with a record of one and four. 
and a team with a record of two and three. And that's kind of what we saw, right? Yeah. So they deserved each other. They, <laughs> it's like a relationship. You just, you deserve each other, right? right? They deserved each other. So it's an interesting question because who is this Broncos team? Is it a team that started off the season that, that, you know, defensively we were disappointed. Now it seems like with some different players defensively and guys getting the Vic Fangio scheme, they feel a lot more comfortable. I think it's more personnel. I think it's a better team. I think it's, it's more, I think they're more what they were the last two games and the first few games. Well, they had an opportunity to win a couple of ball games in, in, right. in the first four. Right. You know what they are, Julie? Tell me if you've heard this before. Or stop me if you've heard this before. They are decidedly mediocre. 100%. It's I, a great. That, that yeah. was a phrase. That was my phrase of last week. Oh, I guess I wasn't listening. No. It has <laughs> not changed. They're decidedly <laughs> mediocre. And yeah. they have a chance. Listen, and we'll know in this podcast, uh, you know, you'll already know the outcome. They have a chance against Kansas City because Kansas City's defense is, is horrid. Terrible against the run. Right. Um, Patrick Holmes is a little, still a little he, hobbled. He, his ankle, he's still, he's still hobbled. Mm -hmm. They don't run the, they haven't been running the ball much. I, I saw we're going into this game last couple of weeks. I think they've thrown it 76% of the time. Uh, so they have they have a chance. You're going to get a little more desperate Kansas City team, uh, but it, the Broncos are hanging in there. But we know who they are. They're somewhere in between in a league that's really bad right now. Julie, there's you're some, so there's, mad at the officiating. Like every every week, I get a text. Say it. Me, say right. it. Say it. What it, you want to say? They're killing the league. They're killing. They're killing football. I see it in college also. They are killing the sport. There are too many friggin' rules, number one. There are too many rules. And number two, the officials in large measure go into a game to a man, referee, back judge, umpire, side judge, headlinesman. They go into a game and they're looking for any infraction or anything that appears to be an infraction and boom, the flag comes out. Why do you As think that is? I don't know if it's an edict from from Roger Goodell and, and Park Avenue, or if they've you know studied these rules so frequently that anytime they think they see an infraction, they throw it. Now they were told early on that if you think it's a, a foul, it's a foul, as opposed to and I, I pontificated on this earlier uh, on an earlier podcast. As opposed to, unless you are 100% sure that there was a foul um, that was produced on a play, then you throw a flag. They already apologized. And after the Monday night game, the Green Bay-Detroit game, you read the same stuff I did, Julie. They they came out and apologized because there was two back-to-back -back hands in the face, which kept you know Green Bay moving down the field. They ultimately win the game on a late field goal. That were they, Neither one was hands to the face. Woody Page wrote a great article and he talked to, and I can't remember his name. He's a, a referee, um, an older referee, like 80, but he was talking about how a lot of the younger referees, he said, in, in my time, you could have called a, a, a penalty on every single play. And that's what they're doing now. He doesn't feel like they're getting, they're trained well enough or something has happened. And there's definitely been a shift and there's really, they don't have to answer to in a society where everybody has to answer to somebody now with social media and the media, this is like the one facet of society 
where they don't have to answer any questions about their performance. No, it's wrong. And, we, we, you know, sometimes we see it also in baseball and umpiring. You know, if a guy had a particularly bad day behind the the plate, or how come they don't have to to answer like everybody else, or how come the league does not let us know who is who's grading out well and, and who's not? Um, I understand that that opens up a Pandora's box because if the fans know that Joe Schmo behind the plate has had a poor year and he's like the you know the worst umpire in terms of ratings the fans are getting a hard time the players the 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 managers are getting a hard time so they can't really publicize that but every sport is slowed down think about an nba game how many whistles there are how many times do you see fluid action like up and down the floor you know five six seven times in a row well, that's without a whistle check, though like that was a you know like that that was how they started playing the game i mean that's like the last two minutes of an nba game if it's anywhere within 10 points is the worst two minutes of sports it's i hate it i know and they're doing it to football and it, they're killing the sport I, I'm not, I don't think i'm exaggerating when i say that they're killing the sport I I ask you, I am, I, I'm telling you, watch a game, all of our listeners, and tell me how often you see three, three successive plays without a flag. It's few and far between. But I would think, because it's it's become such an issue, that didn't a couple of weeks ago Tom Brady said something, and then that Sunday there was no holding calls, right? So somebody said something to somebody. So... I, Julie, I applaud him for that. And I think to your point, it has to come from guys like Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. I'm trying to think of, of who else would have, you know, Drew Brees isn't healthy right now. But he I would have that kind of pull. Russell Wilson, I think now is, you know, he's an MVP candidate and he's, you know, he, he's now a, a really established star in the league. He's won a Super Bowl, et cetera. He's been in another Super Bowl. It has to come from that ilk of player to say enough. You're hurting the game. When we sit at home and watch our brethren play, it's almost unwatchable. And so I think that's where it has to that's where it has to continue to come from. So I applaud Tom Brady for for saying that. Speaking of football, and because it is kind of a, a weird time as we tape this podcast, I wanted to ask you, you have three boys. I saw this article, it was about a month ago, and I saved it because I wanted to talk to you about it. I thought it was really interesting. It was tongue in cheek about these writers from the Washington Post. They wanted to put on every single helmet surgeon's general warning that tackle football is dangerous for children. Children who play tackle football absorb repeated hits to the head as a Adults, they're at higher risk of suffering cognitive defects as well as behavioral and mood problems. Well, that's never going to be on a helmet, right? But then they're they're basically backing that up with a bunch of studies about how researchers at Boston University um, dug up the sports playing past of 214 former football players. Their findings that kids started playing tackle football before age 12 corresponded with increased odds for clinical depression, apathy, and executive function problems, for example, diminished judgment and multitasking. And it, it's, it sounds kind of wordy, but all these, all these studies that Boston University did show if you're playing tackle football at a young age, you have more of a chance of depression, you have more of a chance of, the C, of getting CTE. It's all kinds of issues. So I was curious, because this is not the first time we've heard this, how you handled your boys in sports, because they, they play sports. Yeah, and it's a great question, and I will give you what I think is, uh, you know, I don't know if it's an interesting response, but it's my response. I was, I played 
football and baseball um, into college, and I put all my eggs in the baseball basket. I, I love football. I played 11 years of football. I have my some of my closest friends are guys I played football with. It, it I love the game. I love playing it. I love the adrenaline rush. If you could, if and anybody that's played, when you run out of a tunnel or run onto the field, um, if you could, um, you know, put that adrenaline rush, that drug that you feel and, and bottle it somehow, you'd be the wealthiest person in the world because it's it's an incredible feeling. And it's different than any other sport when you're competing. It's just because of the, you know, the violent nature of, of football. Now, having said that, when my kids were younger, they all played. They all played tackle football. And if at that point in time, you had said to me, Julie, you'd said, hey, Drew, I looked in the, you know, in my crystal ball and we fast forward 10 years and none of your kids are going to play high school football. I would have said BS. I said, my kids will play football. My, my, you know, it, almost like a macho thing. My, my kids play football, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened is they all played uh, for, you know, several years growing up. And in fact, my oldest, Jacob, played, stopped, then went back. And at one point he was going to play in high school, but didn't. The point is, none of them have, uh, and I have two playing baseball in college, none of them played high school football. And I was okay with it because all that we have learned, and it's, you know, so many studies about you know trauma to the head, and, and they're still trying to get their arms around it. I have one left in, in high school, and he's talking about playing, you know, going back and playing football again, and, I, and I'll let him. So I know that's kind of a complicated answer. I'm okay that none Is of that them did. Is that a discussion did. that you guys had or in your head? I mean... No, I, I just, is it dangerous? Yeah, there's a lot of dangerous things. You know, there's more there's more concussions at, at a high levels of soccer. Yeah. Because when when you head the ball um, or when you go up to contest for ball, you know, heads clash together and obviously there's no helmet on with soccer players. There is an inherent risk whenever you run around and compete. And... So are you going to are you going to worry about you know every last thing? I, I I would be okay with it, but the fact that they have most of them haven't played and and kind of like I did put, ended up putting their eggs in the baseball basket, I'm fine with. And I and I didn't think I would be that way. Yeah, I think it's an interesting. I don't have kids, but I was thinking about if I did how I would feel. And I, you know, I've been around sports my whole life, but gosh, this, this research is not going away. It's just more and more. And so I'm just wondering, it's a wonderful sport. I love the NFL. It's my favorite sport. However, I'm just not sure I would choose to put my kid in football. Well, there's a lot of people who, who who are not the um, youth football. the, The numbers have been declining for a while because there are parents, not just moms, there are parents who are saying, you know what, I, I don't want my kid uh, at that kind of risk. I'd rather see him play soccer or, or you know, whatever other sport, but I'm not going to allow him to play football. Um, I'm with you. I, I love the sport. I love what I derive from it participating. Um, I, I enjoy I still enjoy watching it, even though, as I said a few minutes ago, I'm frustrated with the number of, of flags. There's no greater atmosphere than going to a college football game, especially. Mm-hmm. And 
I think one of the things that separates it, Julie, is the level of emotion because I look at football as at the NFL level, there's 16 events. At the collegiate level, there's 12 events before bowl game or if you're one of the four teams that get into the college football playoff, right? And so every game is of profound importance. Where in baseball, yeah, I mean, if you're a Rockies fan or a baseball fan, you're, you're watching your team play. But, oh, they lose on June 4th and they lose on June 5th. Okay, they lose on June 6th. Bad, bad stretch of three days. It's, it's not huge in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. You play 162 and the same thing in hockey and the same thing in the right. NBA. You know, that drives people, some sports fans crazy is when you say that. Is when you're like, oh, there's 162 games. It's mm-hmm. baseball. Has there, te- has there been a team that's approached 162 wins? <laughs> no. So you know going in. No, I know. Now, I know. if you're a Patriot fan you're, uh, or a Bronco fan for most of this franchise's existence, especially the last 40 years, I mean, you're hoping they win every Sunday naturally and realistically you feel like, hey, most years you felt like they had a shot to win and, and I hope they win 12, 13 games. Speaking of Broncos, we have part two with your buddy, Mark Schlereth, ex-former, uh, ex, ex-former. Is that the same thing? That would be the uh, be redundancy. <laughs> uh, that would be from the redundancy. Redundant right. It makes part. him sound very important. Mark Schlereth will join us for part two. And we have a very interesting story from the baseball world that's firing up a lot of a lot of people. Imagine this. Somebody says something stupid. We'll talk about it next. Hey, love telling you guys about my friends at Ideal Home Loans. They are owned by Brent Ivinson. He started the company uh, just after the turn of the century. Sounds like a really long time ago. Brent's great. In fact, I was talking to him today about uh, doing a loan. His staff's really on it. Uh, his assistant, Shannon, they're, they're all terrific. They're salary-based. So as I like to say, you're not going to feel like you have to take a shower after talking to them. They're going to keep you informed. They're going to make it uh, really easy on you. If that means coming to your home, your place of business, uh, to answer all of your questions about a potential home loan on a new property, on an existing property, on refinancing, on consolidating loans or consolidating debt right now, they're the ones to call 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000, Ideal Home Loans. And they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and they've been helping homeowners and home buyers since 2001. Also, they're a local direct mortgage banker. They're really good at what they do. That's why they've had such great success. Give them a call, 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000, and they bring us part two of our interview with Mark Schlereth, Schlereth, stuff you've never heard from Stink in the past. During your heyday with the Broncos, you know, post-Redskins, there was a rule. The O-line didn't talk to the media. And yet, come to find out, at least two, and you probably, uh, I may be missing count, Two guys end up going into broadcasting. You and Nalen. Did you have a Did you have a, a post career thought that this would be the right path? Uh, no. I, I just had always, when I was a rookie with the Redskins, they had this program um, through the Mobile Oil Corporation where you go out and speak to schools, and they'd pay you like four hundred dollars to go out and speak to a school, and you brought a box of football cards you know they had a positive message like hey mark says don't use drugs and alcohol you know whatever right and you pass them all out and um and like i got involved in the program one because i didn't make any money you know i made forty five thousand. i was a starter in the nfl 
and made $45,000. I had a wife and two kids, you know, and, and bought a house. Um, so by the time the, the off season rolled around, I needed that $400 every week. Like we needed it to pay our bills. So that's why I jumped in the program and I found I had kind of an affinity for getting up in front of people and talking. Like I was like, this is kind of fun for me. Like I like this. Right. And so that's kind of how my whole broadcasting career started, if you will. And it was because I needed the $400. So I, every time they come to me, which was like at the time it was once a week, you know, I was, you know, I was making sure, sure will go. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, you're making 1600 bucks a month. And I was like, this is great. Like, this is big money for me. So, um, so that's kind of how the whole thing started. And I honestly thought that once I got done playing, I would take a couple of years off. And, um, we were, I was probably two weeks into retirement and my wife, Lisa, looked at me because I'm a needy person. Like, I have to be, like, I'm all on people, you know, and I'm very, you know, I'm like a fungus. And she's in the kitchen trying to cook, right? And I'm, I'm like, all over. And, and she just, like, at that, at that point, she goes, if you don't find something to do, like, we're going to get divorced. Like, you got like, just something, you got to find something to do because you are driving me nuts. And at that point, I was like, yeah. I agreed. Like I have to have stuff to do, and so um, kind of got into radio. And ESPN called. And I went out and auditioned, and uh, and they hired me, kind of on the spot. So you know, 19 years later, I'm still getting it done. How about because it, it, it's the I don't want to say it's the butt of of jokes. It's not the butt of jokes, but the whole Rock Hoover thing, mm-hmm. and, and actually getting into which is different than broadcast. I mean, theater. I mean, acting. Right. Acting's a different deal. How did that come about? I I, got, I literally got an email from the casting director. His name was Rob Decina of The Guiding Light, and I was in the I was in the newsroom at ESPN when I got this email. So I'm like, out of left field. I mean, you don't know this guy. You've never expressed an interest in being in, on soap operas. Nothing. Just an email, random email. So I open it up. And, um, you know, it was spam probably. I was like, Hey, this is Rob DeSena, casting director of the guiding light. So blah, 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 blah. Um, love your television presence and think you have a soap opera look and would love to talk to you about joining our show. And so I instantly close the email and act like I didn't read it because I'm thinking I'm getting punked like from, you know, Wingo or somebody else at ESPN. Like this is so I wait till I get back to the hotel that night before I answer the email and they say, hey, you know, wait, answer the email. So we get on the call next day and they're like, we'd love you to come down here and audition um, for the guiding light. And I'm like, all right, what the hell? I, you know, I I can roll down there. So I rolled down one day, did a quick audition, met the people, and that sent that, you know, that was a two year kind of recurring role I had on the Guiding Light soap opera, which was crazy. And the crazy thing about it is, you know, you have no context. You're like, you're rolling into a scene. You, you don't, I've never watched a soap opera. I don't know any of the characters. I don't know. Any, so you have no feel for like what, what's going on. And, you know, I'm trying to memorize lines, which I'm horrible at. Uh, uh, you know, I can talk if, if you just say, hey, we're going to talk about this. But I had no idea what was going on. So I'm trying to memorize these lines. It was it was a piece of work. But, you know, I've gotten now I've gotten in. I've been in several movies. I, I've had a recurring role in, in the uh, program HBO Ballers for the last five years. So it's been it's been fun. But, you know, you, you're just kind of playing yourself more than anything else. So it's it's not that hard. Were you more nervous first time you got on the set with, you know, all these lights and extras, et cetera? 
on the guiding light or putting your your right paw in the ground in the dirt and, and trying to block a 320 pound d tackle oh there's no question trying to block a third down and 12 and you know what's on the line you got to put a drive together and you got john elway standing behind you and yeah, there that will that the pucker factor on there and like the bottom line, whether I'm on TV, uh, you know, whether I'm calling a game or in studio or whatever, if I screw something up, it goes off into the ether, you know, and you're like, well, I got it, you know, it's at least nobody's going to crush me, you know, or at least I'm not going to get somebody else hurt. So, yeah, pl- playing is is by far the stress of that and and how important it was to me um, is is by far you know much much more kind of consuming, if you will. One of the things that, and you again, we've known each other a long time. You know, I love football, and you know, I I played through high school into college, and I I love the game. I find it very very hard to watch now, especially at the NFL level. The most visible guys on the NFL are the referees. I you watch a game. I've said this before. It is impossible now to go three successive plays without a flag, without seeing that referee, and then we can mix in some uh, replays as well. Uh, There's no continuity. There's no flow. Do you find it, as somebody that played a long time, won three Super Bowls, great success, and now broadcasting, do you find it difficult to watch? I find it. I I still love it. I'm, I'm so passionate about it. But, yeah, every time a big play happens, I, I'm not looking at the play or getting excited about it. I'm looking for the flag. Every time a touchdown happens, I'm not waiting to celebrate the touchdown. I'm seeing, trying to look at the replays to see, you know, did anybody violate something or did? So yeah, I, I do find it, I do find it difficult. It's funny. I was just out in London calling the Raiders Chicago game and I had a Saturday night, um, soiree with the commissioner that he put on and, Part of the discussion I had with him is I just said, we have done a really crappy job or you have done a really crappy job collectively with um, letting other people set the narrative of our game. People who are not involved in our game set the narrative for our game. And you guys knee jerk to everything they say. And the bottom line to me is there's only 1,700 guys in the world that were blessed enough, athletically and crazy enough to play this game. Let's celebrate that. As opposed to saying, no, let's, you know, let's um, legislate contact out of a contact sport. So every time a quarterback gets hit, you can't even, I mean, every time a quarterback gets hit, there's a flag. It's, it's asinine. I know we're trying to protect those assets, but the bottom line is they have to be football players too. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. There's a lot of frustration that goes on there and, and it definitely needs to be, you know, it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed by football people, not outside sources. A hundred percent. And when you see things that are good football plays for decades, solid football plays, why we gravitate to the game. There is a, listen, there's a violent component. That's why we enjoy it. We're not, and yes, you can still protect the head to a certain degree, but taking guys out, watch college game. They throw kids out for a half and then potentially for the next game for targeting, for making what you would say was a good football play. And, I don't know what will be done. Did you feel like you had a receptive audience? I'll ask you that. Yeah, no, I think I think the commissioner agree with me on a lot of points, and they're trying to you know they're trying to legislate the head out of the game, and and the problem being is you know we're not turtles. I mean, even if I lead with my shoulder, you know, it follows my shoulders, my head, and it sticks out beyond my shoulder. So 
as I said, there's you'll never get the head completely out of the game. So it becomes equipment and everything else. But understand that that we all signed up for this. The other thing that drives me crazy is this equation of, you know, football equals CTE equals I'm going to freak out and kill my family. And there are a few guys that have some problems. But we let, again, we let the this medical community that's not involved in our game set the narrative of of what's going on here and we study nothing like we don't study how does depression affect you once the game gets taken away from you if your identity is in the game and it gets taken away from you do you suffer depression what does that do to brain chemistry what does that do to cognitive reasoning what about opiate addiction what about alcohol addiction what about all those things that guys walk away from the game get depressed and all these things that affect brain chemistry but we don't study any of that, right? And then we just associate, well, you know what? You played football and you must have, you know, some, you must have brain damage. And I'm sure that there's a certain amount of, you know, tau protein that builds up in everybody's brain if you have enough trauma to your brain. But I also believe, and I'm not a medical professional, but I've talked to many neurologists that feel the same way that I feel is that your brain has enough ability, enough plasticity and connectivity to circumvent some of the damage you do to it, just like the rest of your body does. But you start pushing all these other things on top of it with the alcohol and the and the things we don't study and the you know opiate addictions and, and the depression and all these things. So I think there's so much more to it than we've actually looked at. But we've let we've let a community outside of football create the narrative that hey if you play football you're going to freak out and kill people like and it you know the best men i know that have lived into their 60s 70s 80s all played at an incredibly high level and they're the best parents and they're the some of the best businessmen and some of the so we don't we don't look at any of that stuff and that's what pisses me off about the you know it just pisses me off about the narrative that's been created outside of our game and that's another thing i talked to roger about we need to control the message you know, the people that love this game and and have been provided for by this game, we're the only ones that need to control the message, but we let everybody else do it. Of, of many things you said, the, the most notable thing that resonates with me is they have a knee-jerk reaction to every criticism that comes out, to, and, and it doesn't matter what corner it comes out. Let me transition to this. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Broncos. Um, what did you perceive the Broncos to be, and thus far what has unfolded does it match what your perception was two months ago? Yeah, I thought they would, you know, be a seven and nine, eight and eight team, and they've they've had a couple games that they easily could have won. Um, again, I think that you look at where the Broncos were coming into the season. I think there was um, a lack of depth of talent, and I think that's shown at times. Um, a lack of backup players, a lack of just pure depth, and and a lack of development of of players at certain positions. So you know, I look at our offensive line and some of the issues we've had as an offensive line over the last five or six years, there's not enough talent. There's not enough development that has gone on there. Um, lack of a tight end that, that really is a separation guy in a, in a position that is, as you know, has just become kind of this really difficult matchup position. They don't have that. They're the um, chain movers. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of those situations now that I look at and say, they have got to be better talent wise, but you come in with a new coach, a new defensive philosophy, a new offensive coordinator, a new quarterback, it's going to take some time. And I've seen consistent progression, um, especially last week, of a team that's growing into what they are 
And that's a good sign because they're good enough to win games. Um, and, and finding that identity is a really important part of that. Last piece. Quarterbacks. Now we have a veteran here in Joe Flacco. You have a kid who, when he's eligible, is a, is a rookie in, in Drew Locke. Around the league, and you travel around the league every week to call games. Do we give these young guys enough of an opportunity? Are we giving them an opportunity too early and saying they failed and, we were, and we're on to the next guy? What is the issue with developing quarterbacks? Because if I asked you 10 years ago, give me your top five quarterbacks in the NFL, you go, well, Brady, Breeze, Manning at the time, obviously Peyton's out of the game. You're naming the, or Aaron Rodgers. You're naming the same guys you did 10 years ago right. here in 2019. Yeah. I think it's really difficult. Um, you know, you come in, the college game doesn't prepare a lot of these guys to call plays in a huddle. Um, there's a lot of one, like one route reads, like, hey, you know, flag the play action on the zone read, and we're we're just throwing the x the x drift, and that's it. You know, and if that is not open, take off and run with the football. And so, you know, that's what the college game is is providing right now. And then you get into these kind of multiple route combinations where you have you're flooding a strong side with three different receivers at three different levels and you're trying to you know you're really trying to put one guy into conflict you're trying to put the curl hook defender you know or the, the hook defender or the curl defender or the curl flat defender in conflict high low or you know east west and and so that's how the game works but a lot of these kids don't do that the, the issue that you get into i think is that you know the expectation now is well look uh look at what patrick mahomes did He's the MVP, right? And I'm like, that guy's a unicorn. Like, <laughs> like he came in and and he just he could just play. And there's, you know, that's you've seen baseball players. They come and get their opportunity, and they just get it. They're just great right off the like Trevor Story getting called up. Nobody thought that Trevor Story was going to be what Trevor Story is. He's a phenomenal one. He's one of the best defensive shortstops I've ever had the pleasure of watching, and he can absolutely rake. And obviously, he's cut down on his strikeouts and stuff, but. Like they had, they had drafted other guys to be that guy, right? They had drafted Rogers to be the, the, and, and he comes in and you just knew right from the start, like, ooh, something special about this kid. Like there's just guys that are that way. And so it's funny to me because we always kind of compare, like we're comparing Trubisky and we're comparing some of these other young quarterbacks to what Mahomes is doing. Like Mahomes is a unicorn. Let's take him, like that's the outlier. Let's take him off the table. And start really comparing apples to apples instead of, you know, apples to, to oranges. I love the Trevor Story thing. That's why I like the Mark Schlerer story. Yeah. I love 10th rounders. They don't even have 10 rounds anymore. I love 10th rounders more than the first round guy, the pretty guy. Right? right? Give me give me, uh, give me, me 53 guys with a chip on the shoulder. Always good to see you, Stan. Likewise, buddy. Appreciate you. Part two of our Mark Schlereth interview is brought to you by Ideal Home Loan. So we thank them for bringing that interview and all the interviews to you. So a, a pretty interesting story about how he goes from being a football player in the NFL to being on a soap opera, which on the fan, they are merciless playing those drops. He was Rock Hoover. And the, <laughs> the story you, you, you guys just heard, and it was a great one. He gets an email from the casting director at the Guiding Light, and he—you heard him. He pops up on his on his phone, and he like quickly like, you know, puts it aside. He didn't want anybody on the set to see him because he. And then he figured somebody's pimping me. Right. Somebody's. He thought Trey Wingo. He's really close with. He thought Trey Wingo was was pimping him. And so then he goes back and he follows up. And next thing you know, he's talking to the guy, and it was legit. But he thought naturally. I would think that too. Somebody's playing a prank right. on me. Do you know if he has a, is it a SAG card? 
Where I didn't right. ask him. I assume uh, he's now in the Screen Actors Guild. I would think, yeah. I mean, if you have a reoccurring role, which he did on Guiding Light, Rock Hoover. That's a that's, that's a, a great that's a soap opera name. That is a soap opera name, isn't it? Right. Yeah. That that's pretty solid. So, anywho, hey, did you see? I'm sure you did because it's it's making a lot of news and really for all the right reasons. And the right reasons are the backlash. The story about Daniel Hudson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Daniel Hudson, for those that missed it, who's pitched for a long time in the big leagues, he is, uh, you know, one of the top back end guys for the Washington Nationals back of their bullpen. And and he's one of the few guys that's actually pitched well. Sean Doolittle uh, being maybe the other guy they can really trust down there. They have a great rotation, but they've struggled in the bullpen. And his wife was giving birth. So he was on paternity leave, which baseball got out from the dark ages a few years ago and allowed their players to take paternity leave to be with their uh, you know, spouse or their significant other um, for the birth of, of their, their children, right? Right. And that's what occurred. And he took in some circles, not many, some circles some shit for for being at the birth of his kid. This I thought was the worst. This is, you know, sometimes we like to talk about the good and the bad of sports and this is the this is the bad of sports. We talk about being at the birth of your child. Former Miami Marlins president David Sampson tweeted Direct quote, unreal that Daniel Hudson is on paternity leave and missing game one of the NLCS. Only excuse would be a problem with the birth or health of baby or mother. If all is well, he needs to get to St. Louis. Inexcusable. Will it matter? Hashtag wait to see. Now, he came back and and apologized pretty much and backtracked, but he did send out that tweet. And that's when I... There were there were others. There was there was somebody else I read, Julia. I forget the guy's name. He has some followers, so he he does he's a either a I think he's a newspaper writer or something who came out and and basically blasted Daniel Hudson in in the same fashion. Did you see this though? That what Sean Doolittle said, his fellow pitcher. He said, "If your reaction to someone having a baby is anything other than congratulations, I hope everybody's healthy. You're an a hole." <laughs> He's 100% right. I mean, he simplified it. Who who are these people that put their own value system on professional athletes because, and you heard, hey, he's making $5.5 million a year. I don't give a crap what the hell he's making. That's irrelevant. You're talking about a once-in-a-lifetime situation. Some will say, well, hey, you don't know if the Nationals make it again. It does not matter. This is more important. Would you, an accountant, would you, a bank manager, would you, a service director at some company, miss the birth of your kid because, hey, it was a big day, Wednesday's a, you know, a real prominent client was showing up? No. Well, you would if your priorities were not in the, what we think are in the right place, right? Well, yeah, for me, I'm sorry, Yes. Uh, and my, I agree with you, right? Yeah. But that for somebody, a hundred percent. Now, I, I, I'm sure he was. I don't even want to say he was conflicted. I'm sure he was like, boy, I wish the timing was different. I, I you know, I wish his, my wife could have given birth two days ago when it was, we were between series. You understand all that? But guess what? I've said this many, many times. I take games off to watch mostly to, to watch my kids compete, right? And I've always said I missed. 
for instance, Vin Scully, the Rockies happened to be playing the last home game at Dodger Stadium that Vin Scully was broadcasting. And one of my boys was playing, um, you know, an important weekend series somewhere. It may have been the state championship or state playoffs or or in college, whatever it was. And I and I chose to miss that game. And. It, it wasn't a hard decision because I always say this, Julie, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. When they get ready to throw dirt on my ass, I'm not going to be lamenting the game I missed at Dodger Stadium or the game I missed at Wrigley Field. It's going to be my legacy is about what my kids think of me. Right. Right. And, and I hope that applies for everybody else out there. And there's too many people in sports. I've seen it with announcers that are so caught up with how many games they've broadcast or how many consecutive games they've been in the booth. Mm-hmm. And for the professional athlete who is handsomely paid, what are you going to remember? Yeah, you'll remember the, the you know, if you're an athlete the the great moments you had and the camaraderie in the locker room, but you're going to remember the birth of your kid. So you know how a lot of people or some people like to say, I can't relate to these athletes. This is a situation where you should have, you we could relate, right? This, this, he's making a very regular person decision, right? I mean, and that I think is interesting and that with even the, the money that they make, and we know this, these athletes are just, they're just people. They're just like you and I, and they make the same decisions that you and I make. So I guess we shouldn't be so surprised at, but but social media has brought out the people that um, like to make um, like to judge other people, right? And he he got judged. Well, it's the worst. It's the worst of, of social media, and I think there were there was you know far more people that came to his defense. Not that he should care less what David Sampson thinks or um, the the writer in whatever town he was who came out and and ripped him. He did he did the right thing, and as it turned out, Washington really didn't need Daniel Hudson to run through St. Louis. Are you one of those guys that, because you've had three boys that said, oh, we're going to have a baby, you know, this week, or we're going to have a baby next July. Be honest. Did you say we? Because, you know, so long ago, honestly, I don't, I. Please tell me you didn't say we, because Kristen, do you understand this? Like men that, that men that say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a baby tomorrow. I don't. I don't uh, find no, fault no, with that. No, no, you the, didn't have the You baby. guys are going through. Listen, you guys do all the work. I understand that. You got your bodies get you know traumatized, ravaged, ravaged. I understand that. <laughs> I, I don't fully understand it, but you're right. But in reality, and when uh, you're in a relationship, you we are. You know, we're 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 having a baby. My wife is due in you know mm. in May or in March or mm-hmm. June is my three boys those are the three months they came so i don't remember it's been a long time ago my youngest is uh gonna be 17 mm-hmm. in a few months so so by the third one were you a, like we got this or i got this um no because it's still you know it's still it's a it's a euphoric situation but it's also you know nerve-wracking and dude, you don't take anything we're talking you don't take things for granted it's not like garrett cole getting on the mat you take <laughs> for granted all right he's gonna throw seven eight innings and they're not gonna get any runs and he's going right. to strike out half the batters he faces. Okay. Childbirth's a little different than that. Okay. I was trying to trip you up a little bit. I'm speaking. So speaking of playoffs, as we end the podcast, it's tough because they change, you know, on a, on a nightly basis. But as we get deeper into the podcast, 
congratulations to the Dodgers for losing again. That made me very, very happy. I saw that you were um, you were ecstatic about that. Mm-hmm. I, I tagged you on that. I noticed you didn't retweet. Why didn't you retweet that? Um, because I. I'm, I'm not a Dodger fan. You know that. I'm not a Dodger fan. I I have great respect and admiration for Dave Roberts. I like Dave a, a great deal. Um, I I'm not disappointed they lost. They're you know they're the Rockies' rivals in the division. Do you think he's gonna get fired? Hell no. Why would I don't get this? I I was got after somebody. You saw this on Twitter the other day about about. Um, Somebody said, oh, Buddy Black, you know, some rogue fan, Buddy right. Black should be in trouble. Why? He's been here three years. They've gone to the postseason two years in a row. People have to understand, this is not like football coaches that can, you know, manipulate chess pieces. He's going to he's gonna put a lineup together. He's going to get his team prepared, and he's going to send out, you know, whoever's start it is. And if the guy stinks that day, that's not on him. It's on the guy. He didn't have a good day. The fact that the Rockies were 71 and 91 has very little, if anything, to do with Buddy Black. The fact that the Dodgers won their seventh straight division title but fell short of their goal of winning a world championship, that's not Dave Roberts' fault. Dave does a really good job. Yeah, well, I think it's- They got beaten in game five against a team that played a little better that day. It's baseball. Mm, I think one day he's going to, even though I think with that payroll- I mean, at some point, you have to feel like they, they have to break through, right? We, we scapegoat in, in athletics, in fandom. We want a scapegoat when our team doesn't win. They didn't win, damn it. Has to be somebody's fault. The other team played a little better today, especially in baseball. But but the, and I can't believe we're doing Dodger talk here, but the expectations in LA are like they used to be here in Denver, I guess. It used to be Super Bowl or bust. It's not just okay I, I understand what you're saying, Julie, but if you look at the Dodgers and you look at the Nationals, did they lose to a really inferior team? Mm-mm. They did not at all. The The Nationals are really good. Nationals, The Nationals you know, are going to have an opportunity to win a world championship, and it's not a fluke. Everybody knew going in that they were really dangerous because they line up Max Scherzer, future first ballot Hall of Famer. Um Steven Strasburg, who's an elite starter, who in the postseason has put together historically great numbers, not historically good numbers, historically great numbers. Then you have Corbin, who you know hasn't been great yet, but that's not a bad number three. They're paying him $140 million. And then up and down that lineup, some of the best young talent in baseball. And then you fit, then you have an MVP candidate in Rendon, a guy in Zimmerman who's, who's turned back the clock and is playing well. Howie Kendrick is really, he hasn't fielded well, but he swung the bat well. That's a damn good baseball team. It was not a fluke that they took out the Dodgers. As we end the podcast, do you want to call a World Series winner? I'm still going to go because, you know, this is going to be down the road as as we're taping right now. The the Astros are up two to one on the Yankees. Um, I'm still going to go with Houston. I picked them, you know, weeks and weeks ago. Not that that's going out on a limb. They're the best team top to bottom in baseball. And I think it'll be a hell of a series. I think they're going to I think it'll go along with the Yankees, but they're going to take out the Yankees. And then it'll be uh, a well-rested Nationals team. And Houston, and I'm, I'm going to stick to what I said earlier. I'm going to go with Houston. There you go. And that is the end. Of the podcast Drew, number 14. Of podcast number 14. We'll see you next week.